and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus asks for unity so that the world will know that God sent him. The watching world can judge the reality of Jesus based on the unity of the church. Scary, right? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, Greater Love, with the second part of a message entitled, One Family, which covers John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me also express, love having you here, your guest. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming to be with us. I'm going to do uh, what we did last week. I'm going to ask us to stand in honor of the author of the text that we read. Our God, we, uh, we read now from the book of, of uh, John. This is a great text. It's, a, it's what's called the high priestly prayer of our Savior Jesus. And in the midst of it, he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I can only imagine what it was like that day as your son Jesus probably kneeling before you at that moment. And probably not as I read it, but uh, with passion, crying out, Oh, Father, let these your people, let them know and let them experience what we experience in our unity. And, oh, God, he would say to you, I'm sure, with passion we can't imagine, and let people know about us because of them, even by their love. So God, would you do that among us in this church? It's our prayer today. We ask that you might be honored even in the teaching of your word. We ask it in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Take your seats, please. Our series is entitled Greater Love. For you that knew with us, we're glad you're with us. You can jump in at any time in a series here. We try to make it very easy to understand where we've come from. Uh, The first few weeks of this series, uh, several weeks, were spent on uh, loving those people who are different from us socioeconomically and particularly as we would think of the poor. Many, many texts of scriptures deal with how we are to treat the poor. Now we're in the second of four weeks we're devoting uh, to loving people who are different from us culturally and specifically by means of race, not exclusively, certainly. But it is a big issue. It's an important issue that needs to be tackled, and it is addressed so much in God's Word. It is. And then we're going to end this series in the last weeks. We'll be addressing the subject of loving people who are different from us relationally, in the sense particularly of thinking about our enemies. How do you love your enemies? Is it possible if they're your enemies, that means you don't love them, right? 
No, not according to God's word. Now, our series is on one family. And, and this is going to cover, and it should be applied to every aspect from, from gender to age, loving people who are different than us. We don't quite get them, understand them, enjoy them because of whatever age they may be. But you know, we're going to focus particularly on race and not just the African-American and the white relationship. But I'll say this, I'm going to primarily touch there. And that's not to exclude the application to all races, loving all people of all races. I'm not just talking to those of us that are white. It's, it's all of us. We're part of his family. We're to love people of all races. But the reason that I am specifically pointing at this one relational conflict is because there's a sense in which if you look back over history, let me maybe use an illustration. Imagine being in grade school. You're in grade school and and you know, as I know, there were people that, that we didn't treat too good, those of us that were maybe a little bit more popular than some that weren't as popular. And so we, we probably can relate to it being one side or the other. And, and some people we would ignore, some people we would maybe make fun of a little bit. But there was probably that one or two in your and my school that we remember that got bullied. They truly got bullied. It's a big subject today because so many kids are getting bullied. I had a granddad from Florida that I know wrote me asking, how do you deal with a grandson being bullied? What do you do? Now, let me tell you, if you've offended by neglect or whatever, that's wrong and bad and we need to make amends. But let me tell you, when we bullied somebody and our heart is turned where do we start with the one that maybe we, we maybe neglected a little bit, uh, as important as that is? No, you start with the one you bullied. And there's been a lot of bullying going on. We know that in our history. So I am going to give some attention there, but I am going to do it, though such an emotionally, I mean extremely emotionally sensitive subject. I know it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, navigating through a minefield trying to avoid explosions, even in doing this. But folks, what we're doing is looking at this theologically. There's the safety we find. All we're caring about here is let's, let's make sure we're dealing theologically, not politically with the subject matter. I hope you hear that. I have, not, have no name put with this concern that was passed on to me. But it was a statement of, uh, I'm tired of feeling in this series to be made to feel guilty because I'm white and because I have excess material things. Let me tell you, I've listened to every word of this series, listened to every week, I know what I've said. I'll tell you right now, that is not true. There's never been one person who sat in this place and talked from this pulpit and said, let's make people feel guilty. Let's tell them it's wrong to be white. Let's tell them that 
you know what? If you got a whole bunch of money, you just wrong. Because there are people who don't have money, and therefore you just wrong. I don't believe it. Nobody on our team believes it. Nobody has said it. No one's implied it. It may be what's being heard, but it's not because of what's being said or believed up here. I will say this. I think we have an inappropriate view, many of us, about guilt. As if, you know what, I feel guilty enough, I do enough, I don't don't want to go to my church and be told in such a way to make me, about anything that would make me feel guilty. Do you know, you need to understand this, guilt is a gift from God. If it arises because of the application of truth, nothing wrong with guilt. It's when those that pronounce the truth, by the way, we could not love the law of God. And David said, oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night. You could not love the law. If you said one thing I don't want is to feel guilty, the purpose of the law was to show as a mirror, as we look into it, to see our own sins so that we run to the grace of our Jesus. So, no, but it's you don't leave them in guilt. Well, the law exposes and the love of God's grace applied brings forgiveness. And when you say, let's give half the story, let's not do both sides. Either way, you get in big trouble. I do believe if, if there is a, a sense of, of guilt because some of us have, have harmed those that are at a disadvantage, or we, we pray for guilt that we may repent and might come back in the arms of a loving father. Last week we started with the, the idea of, of God having a family, and that family has a story, and it does. And so we, we started walking through the story. Uh, we realized that not to understand this story is to never really understand his view of loving people of different types, different tribes, languages, nations, races. Uh, we'll never understand it. And so we tried to give you kind of an outline of the story, and I, I put it in, in five headings. It goes like this. Number one, the origin of God's family, and simply tried to teach there that God has one family. There is one man and one woman that starts that family. It's to be a holy and happy family, and that is his plan. But we come to chapter 2, and it says the fracturing of God's family. That, that family does get fractured. It's called sin. All is sin. They fall short of the glory of God. And so we're a broken people. We talked about that brokenness, how you see it not just in the fall, but as it continues uh, to be shown so clearly, even in the consequences of the Tower of Babel. So we got, a, we got an issue there. We have, a, we have a people, literally, we have a people who hate one another because we're broken. That's what happens. Then we looked at chapter number three, the restoration of God's family. And so God in his divine providence has planned this from the foundations, before the foundation of the world. I mean, this has been through eternity. It's been his plan that he's going to take his people and he's going to restore. He's going to restore them. And so we talked about the promise of restoration that begins in the earliest, the first book of the Bible, all the way through the restoration. But not just the promise, but there has to be also what we talked about as the purchase. There is the purchase of Christ at Calvary eh, without which we would never be restored. But we are. The people of God are a restored people. We're not a perfect people, but we've been restored. 
And in that restoration, we have the opportunity now of growing in his grace. And as we do, we come more and more in the likeness of him. And that's where our text is going to come in. When Jesus prays, here's my, my little infant, you know, family, the church. And, and Lord, I, I pray, Father, I pray for them that they may experience the unity that we have. It's not going to come immediately. The minute you're born again, now I've got the full expression experience of it. No, we do have unity with him, but we don't experience it with one another as we should. We don't experience the unity with him as we should because of our sin. So we're in a pilgrimage to, to be restored in the likeness. We're in the likeness. We've been restored, but now we want, to, we want to experience that and live it out. And so we are restored when we come into his kingdom. But it takes us to a, a fourth point that we're not going to talk about till today. We didn't even really address it. I just barely commented at the end. And we skipped right to number five, which was the future of God's restored family. And to understand the future, uh, we, we, we portrayed it as a portrait. That, that our text, which was Revelation in chapter 7, in verses 7 through 10, it, it gives us the picture of all of God's saints now gathered in the heavenlies. And we see them without sin and the beauty. It's the perfect portrait. It is, it's everything he had been planning to do. Here are all these people who are gathered. But there's a reason why they were able to be gathered. And the reason comes in the context of the text we used last week. John, the apostle who writes Revelation, is in vision escorted into the throne room and he sees a book of God's decrees determining whatsoever comes to pass all to the benefit of his kingdom. Everything designed with the interest of his people. John weeps because it can't be opened. If it's not open, it's not executed. And then here comes the lamb and the lamb takes it and breaks it open. And there's seven seals and the first seal is broken open. And you can just see the, the elation that must have come as the first seal is portrayed as Christ as a conqueror. And he must have said, oh yes, this is it. The, the first of the seals of all God's to do is, is Christ our conqueror. How good can it get? Show us number two. And two all the way through the end through number six it's not it's not happy news I mean it's persecution to the church it's pain suffering it's death it's all kind of bad stuff wait wait God's people are going to experience all of that as part of your providence your your plan that's right why oh because I'm I'm using it to make a beautiful portrait of my people. You'll see. And that's where we come to Revelation 7, our text. And we find that there's one people. It's one family. It's a holy family. They're dressed in white robes. And it's a, it's a delightful family. It's, there's no distinction. But it says that they're in every tribe and nation, every people, every race. We're one family. We're happy and we're holy. Oh, well, then what's the deal with number four? What, what was passed up there? Number four we look at now, and that's the display of his family. The display of his family. This last week, if you were here, get it on podcast. If not, if you're interested. But we talked about when you are a broken 
and fractured people, you are a selfish people. There's no sin that I confess more often, virtually every day of my life. And I'll never be rid of it till glory, and it is selfishness. I mean, the deepest part of my sin is in selfishness. And it, and it comes no uglier than selfishness. That's the root. I mean, it's such a root to so much. You add adversity to brokenness, and man, we become I use like an animal that's injured and trapped. Well, bad things happen. Vicious things happen. And that's what's happening today. So we suggested that we'd look this week, but what if, just what if there were an exception? And that these people who are restored people would set aside the selfishness by the power of the Holy Spirit, only way they can do it. And, and they unified and said, let's be as one, even as the Father and the Son. What if we reflected the unity of God? What if we really put into practice the very prayer, the request that the Savior prayed when he was, when he was praying there, that high priestly prayer? Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be fantastic if that were to happen? What if, what if because of that exception that the church literally became God's feature attraction? We looked in closing at John 13, 35. It goes like this. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Hey, if we had just seen the verse, by this, will all men know that you are my, Jesus' disciples, and left it blank, what would we say? Oh, because we keep the Ten Commandments. Oh, because uh, we are faithful in. Uh, we would add that so many different things to conclude that. And he says, no, you know how it really is. It's, it's by your love. That's the pinnacle test. It's love. And particularly those who are different from who we are. And so our text today... I just read it, John 17. I won't reread it just for time's sake, but we're going to jump, we're going to jump into that because it's, it's really just God's, it's God's intent. It's his heart. And it's pretty simple. There's not much to really have to say, well, what does he mean by that? I mean, we're talking the Trinity. Unity is there. I mean, this is one God, three persons. It's, it's so united, we can't even understand it. We can't, we can't get our minds around it. But he says, I want them to experience the identity we have. I want them to have it with one another. I would suggest that the display that's been going on on earth has not been stellar. I think we would agree. I mean, Christians, uh, I mean, the truth of it is, I mean, why is it that it's been said, and I think it's probably accurate, that 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week? Why? Because, well, apparently this display has not come as far along as we would certainly hope that it would. And Christians, we see God and we see his truth through the eyes of our own culture and prejudices. Do we not? Do you, ever, do you remember the name E.V. Hill? Any of you, I don't know if you've, you've heard of E.V. Hill. I, I just was awed by E.V. Hill. Uh, he died years ago when he was, uh, before he hit 70. But he was a great uh, African-American preacher in, in uh, California. And just a bold saint, just a, a great, great uh, evangelist. And uh, uh, he tells the story of the two men, two pastors. One was black and one was white. And, and they kept just 
not arguing, but talking and trying to convince the other one, uh, the, uh, the African-American would say, you know, you're going to find out when we get to heaven, God is going to be black. And uh, the white pastor said, no, 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 no. When we get to heaven, God is going to be white. You will see that. And they went on and on for years, and they happened to die at the same moment. And they stand before the curtain waiting to be open to see their God. And they pick up their conversation. It's about to, I'm going to show you now is the time. I told you he's going to be like, no, 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 you watch. He's going to be white. The curtain opens and they hear, buenos dias, senores. <laughs> you know, both of them. Oh, my goodness. We got, we, it's got to be. It's the only way I can see life. And they find out we're all wrong. Well, let me tell you, this began as early as the New Testament. I mean, obviously, throughout the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see it come alive. As you see now, on one level, there are two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And as I said last week, we can't express how strongly the hatred was between those two groups. But within the Gentiles, there was ethnic diversity. There were Romans and there were Greeks. Incredible hate between the two. People would come to faith. It's still a problem. Then you had cultural diversity besides that. You have uh, what were called the, the Greeks versus the barbarians and the barbarians versus the, Synth, uh, the Scythians. And, and, and so you have all of this division. And, and really, until you understand the historical background of all this, you don't really see in the Scriptures. I've missed it for so long how much of the scriptures are really dealing with this issue of how do you come together? How do you come together? And then the, the church is born and there, there never is just the Greek church or just the Roman church or just the, the Gentile church or the Greek. It, it's not. It's one church for all. And they had their problems, quarrels and struggles and issues, of course. Paul comes along and he is so frustrated with it, he declares it a different gospel in Galatians chapter 1. Because he found out that, well, some of them were saying, well, you've got to become a Jew if you're going to be a part of the church. And finally, he just screams out, stop it. It's not so at all. Fast forward 50 or 60 years from right now, backwards. Go back 50 or 60 years from right now. Do you know that the Southern Presbyterian Church from which we came, the churches that birthed the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, came out of the Southern Presbyterian Church. They, along with the Southern Baptist, along with the Methodist and so many others, during the time that our federal government was beginning to push toward desegregation, pushing toward the reality that let's put people together. And they were doing it in ways and people is controversial, this, that, and the other. But, but the truth of it was that at that time, it was these groups who showed such great resistance. They resisted equal opportunity for employment. They literally went to the government to express, no, don't do what you're doing. They also fought for school desegregation or, or for segregation. They, they fought against desegregation. In fact, some started private schools just to keep the African-American separate from the Caucasian. 
This is the church. And they fought against even the voting rights to be what they now are. I, I mean, it, it was really blatant. I had no idea. I started reading some and, and, and listening to, uh, some things from some, some of the men that I have honored the most and believed just so, just incredibly great godly men and realized how they so missed some of this great truth. So many of them later to say, I am so sorry. Let me tell you, Billy Graham did us a great favor. Now we celebrate his life as he is now with the Lord. Did you know that he came along when it was against the grain of so much of the evangelical church? And he said, I will not have any single crusade. I will not have a crusade in any city that will not invite all people to come. In doing so, he identified with Martin Luther King. In doing so, he influenced many young evangelicals, including some of the men that mentored me. When the PCA was birthed, it was not birthed for any reason except we want to be able to hold the Word of God and truth and go out to a lost world. And to say we've got to fight whether the Scriptures or the Word of God or not, that's not what we want to give our attention to against the Christian community. We want to, we want to move on. There were men such as the two that, that mentored me, Frank Barker and Jim Baird, who so stamped this church. And they said, no, 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 no. We will not start a denomination that is not open to all people. They had their first little gathering where they were forming this idea of the PCA, true to the Reformed faith, true to the Word of God. It would be a, a man showed up and he said, I'd like to make a gift for $1 million to start and birth this new organization. They were awed. Money, they had no money whatsoever. They couldn't figure out how they were going to do it. And this was like the answer. And they were like, he said, a million dollars then? Jim Baird told me a million dollars then would be like a trillion dollars today, it seemed. It's like uh, unfathomable, that amount of money being given to them. And then the man said, but by the way, one condition. No blacks. No blacks. And with that, they tore up the check and said, you're not going to be a part of who we are. Now, does that mean that we have done a great job in, in opening up the doors to all? I don't think so. And we wouldn't have this message. Well, that not the case. I want you to understand there are two types of racism, just so you understand. Because this can be so confusing. Say, well, I don't think, well, how do you think we're racist? There's ontological racism. Ontological has to do with being where there's a sense of which I think that my being is different than your being. I just heard this this morning. A story of somebody sharing about a, a friend and a guy in ministry that uh, shared his story uh, of being raised in California as an African American and having then gone to a Christian school and in college and some some friends came up and just asked, not making fun, not having it, just said, "Let me just ask you, how do you deal with the idea, with the reality that that you have come from monkeys?" He's, that's ontological. Your very being is not of worth. And do you know, many Christians believe that for many, many years. Well, that's not most of our issue, but ours is more cultural. It's a cultural racism where we find ourselves using advantages that we have to harm the disadvantages. Nothing wrong with having advantages, but 
but when we use them to harm others, it is, or, or, or maybe our failure to defend the, the various dignity and rights of, of, uh, of so many minorities, just our silence. Our silence regardless, regarding policies and structures that keep the disadvantaged marginalized, and it could go on and on. Let me just make it personal. Perimeter Church, me. I was taught when I came into ministry, I had a class on it, the homogeneous principle. If you want to reach a lot of people, let them be the same kind of people. It's the way to grow a church. And we debated that. And I said, is this right? I believe it. I think so. I don't know. I know it is true. You do reach people, pastor, da-da-da-da-da. For many years, thought, well, it's the way you do ministry, I guess. I regret, I regret deeply I never preached this sermon 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Shame on me. I would like to call for two steps to be taken by all of us. The first is simple repentance. Repentance is so important, like all sins, this like all sins. There has to be a sense of where we agree we're wrong and, and we're remorseful for it. But I'm going to say something now that's going to shock many of you and it, it could offend some. I don't know. Not only do we have to pray asking forgiveness for our sins, we need to ask forgiveness for the sins of our fathers and forefathers, our families and past generations. And I know there's some that are saying, what in the world are you talking about? That is ridiculous. I'll confess what I've done. I'm not confessing what anybody else has done. Remember, this is going to be theological. There's a theological term. It comes out of a sociological reality, but it's, it's, it's in the Scripture. It's not the words that are used, but we use to describe what is in Scripture, and it's called corporate personality where a whole family is treated as one individual. We're Western. We're individualistic. No, 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 no family. It's I'm me, my brother's him, he does this, she does that. I'm not a part. That's really foreign to Eastern thought from which the Scriptures were birthed. But more than just the Scriptures were birthed, it's the reality of how God has set up his plan for redemption. You go to Romans 5, man, it's the foundation of our faith. We would have no faith were it not for corporate personality. What is it saying? There, there are two Adams. There's the first Adam, the Adam of Eve. And when Adam sinned, Romans 5, we all sinned. What? That can't be. You're not going to hold me responsible for what Adam did. And I tell seekers, I say, you better hope that is the case. Because if he didn't, the same thing would happen. We'd all sin. And then we would just be held for our own sin. It wouldn't have anything to do with the representation at all. And we'd think, hey, that's good. What difference does it make? We all perish. You think you're going to live a lifetime without sin? It ain't going to happen. But because there is this corporate personality, there's a second Adam, Jesus. And we don't have to become righteous in our efforts. What we have to do is to come into his family. And we get the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. 
Well, that's the greatest news we could ever have. But it doesn't just stop there. Go to the Ten Commandments. I mean, you've got to have read the Ten Commandments. You get the Fourth Commandment and it says, oh, oh, and by the way, your sins will be visited upon the third and fourth generation. And, and, and likewise, you know, the loving kindness of God will be passed on to the third and fourth generation. What? Well, what does that have to do with the generations and we just push it aside? What does that mean? It means corporate personality. It's true. The covenants, the signs that we give, the Old Testament, circumcision, New Testament baptism. Why is it that these little babies were circumcised? What could they know? What could they do? Oh, no, it was because of the faith of the parents. Oh, how can these people, the kids get baptized now? No more shedding of blood. Why are they, why are they, oh, oh, because they're part of a covenant family and they get the benefits of the family. See, it's all through Scripture. In fact, Joshua 7, the greatest classic illustration, and that's the, the story of Achan, if you remember Achan. You know, Achan, Jericho is, falls and he takes some of the bounty and hides some of the gold and as it turns out, God says, there's sin in the camp and by the time they dealt with it, there's the family left. All the other tribes and all the other clans and, but here's left, their family. And you know good and well, it's just implied all the people that family didn't know what he'd done. And what does God say? The family must die. What? It's corporate personality. And that may seem foreign, but it is a blessing. It is truly a blessing. And so look at Leviticus 26.40. It says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers. What? Confess the iniquities of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. Ezra 9, it's the same thing. It's, it's telling us, okay, ask forgiveness for. But when you come to, I'll put up one other text, uh, Nehemiah 1, 5 and 6. It says, I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your, eye, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, and my father's house have sinned. My grandfather committed adultery against my grandmother, broke my father's heart to see what happened in his family. I'm not sure he ever cared for his, grand, for his father as a result of what he did to his precious mother he loved so much. My, mother did this, my father did the same thing to my mother. As much as he seemed to despise what his dad had done, he followed in the same sin. I understand the promises and, you know, of the third and fourth generation. And I can remember when I understood this truth, coming before God and say, Oh, God, mm-mm. I confess the sin of my father. I confess the sin of my grandfather. And I'm so sorry for what they did. Now please break that chain. I don't want my boys. I don't want my girl. I don't want them to experience this. So, and not just that. I want you to be honored. Let me tell you, there is a place for that without doubt. Why? Why do we do this? My friend Leon, uh, Leonce Crump, who planted a church out of our church here, was in a group with him just a month or two ago, and he said, 
We're talking about this whole subject. He says, you can't just hit reset. You can't forget the past. And I'm convinced God knows that. And therefore, he has us repent for the past. I had a group here from Charlotte, a group of men that came for our Express Your Faith training last night, Friday night and yesterday morning. And they came together and the group of them wanted to meet me for breakfast early and be able to ask some questions. One of them was African-American. In the midst of all the questions, he looked at me and he said, what's the state of African-American and white relationship in Atlanta? I said, oh my. Maybe I'll use the word tense in probably understating the case. He said, why do you say that? I said, because of the past. Not because of the present, as much as it is the past. But it's both. He said, explain. And I said, it's just what I've been telling our people. When you are injured and you're hurt badly, and particularly by certain people, and then in your pain of being so hurt, you feel trapped in a corner that you cannot get out of. You just don't see a way of escape. Let me tell you, you get mad. And you do things that you would never do in right thinking. But you're injured and you're trapped. And that's the state of your people. And it has been. And he looked at me. He said, I can't believe you said that. Thank you. Yes. They know. Forgiveness, asking forgiveness is essential for reconciliation. So I want to do something right now before I close this thing. I got a few more things to say, but I want to pray. And I want to ask God. I want to ask God for forgiveness. For my sin and any of you that would like to ask God for forgiveness of your own heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I ask and I'm sure pray on behalf of many who say, please forgive us. Forgive us for how we have so failed you in this arena. Whether it be ontological, cultural, or both, it doesn't matter, Father. We have, we have hurt the dignity of many brothers and sisters, and they're our family. God, please forgive us. And thank you for the assurance that you do as we confess our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, I had Brian White come up in our worship service. Brian is going to speak, Lord willing, next week to us. Brian, many of you know Brian in our church. He's one of our pastors. He's a few years older than me. He's African-American. He's been on our staff 11 years. It came out of a very deep, culturally black church God called him here in a way that will blow your mind when you hear the story I've asked him to tell the story I want him to be introduced tonight today to you and without him knowing it I wanted to ask him a few questions I called him up last night and I asked him for forgiveness and uh, I asked him a few questions I asked him would you would you tell us you're a pro football player for five years. And I heard you say in a meeting not long ago, you used athletics to escape. Explain that. 
And he did. And then I said, I heard you say something you never knew, that the, that the racism that is systemic would impact your children as negatively as it did. And when he shared that story a month or two ago with me, he wept as he told the story. I said, tell me your hardest, most painful experience. He said, oh, I don't know where to start. You know, he didn't know. But he says, I remember it started young. My little, I was a little boy, nine or ten, I forget. And he said, I live in the same neighborhood with my granddad, and I held him up. He was my everything. I love my grandpa. And I'll never forget at that young age seeing a 19, 20-year-old come up and call him boy and tell him what to do. And my grandfather, big strong man, said yes, sir, to a 19-year-old. He said, I, it just, and he started just weeping. I asked him to forgive me. And then I said, maybe some of you would agree. And let me tell you, it was a moving moment. He was to be here this morning. Found out from his wife, 3.30 in the morning. Rushed to the hospital in the ER. As a horrible problem with gout that's come up and and he's on morphine he doesn't even know he's missing right now his time to speak Lord willing he'll be with us next week but listen to his story if he is it's incredible but I would like to ask all of our minorities here and I'm not talking about just African American I'm talking about all of our minorities our brothers and sisters would you forgive me and would you forgive Perimeter Church because it is our intention to do it right. It is not our intention to say, will you forgive us? And then walk away. We're going to start the why. The, uh, uh, we're going to start it. it it's going to happen. You're going to see us. We're going to represent this place with the community. And we're going to do it through love relationships. If any of you would like to join me in asking forgiveness to our minority brothers and sisters... Don't do it just because others do, but I would say let's do so by means of applause right now. One other thing, though, I'm going long and I don't care. There's a second, and that is this. It's not just repentance, it's relationships. And it's just brief to say, I love the way R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul just passed away, one of the greatest theologians of our day. The church is a community where God's power to reconcile people to himself is experienced and shared in transformed relationships. How does that happen? Let me tell you, it happens intentionally. It happens not because we put programs together. It's intentional through building relationships. My friend, I, I quoted and said he came to speak to our officers, Crawford Loritz, African-American pastor in North Atlanta here. He's just one of my dear, uh, just, I just respect this man like few people I know. And he said it this way when he spoke to our officers, you can't love from a distance. Real love relationships pull you back from ra- racism. Authentic strategy will flow out of heart relationships. So what if every one of us that love the Lord were to ask God, would you give me one new friend in the near future who is different from me? And would you continue to do that until this place reflects this community? You know that with a six-mile radius that the Caucasians are less than 50% now? We don't want to be the most segregated hour. And we're not looking for quotas. 
we're just saying let's reflect the love in such a way that we're not just loving people that are enjoyable that we know a lot about that's easy in fact this is probably going to require uh, some what we might call I don't think it'd be temporary but we're inviting some discomfort in doing this uh, I, I think it's going to mean emulating the incarnational grace of Jesus which as you know he tabernacled with cultures that were totally different than his for those of us that are introverts, if you've been with us in the past months, you know what I mean when I say we're going to have to lean forward and flap our arms and just fall off the cliff and watch what God does. This morning I got a text from one of our staff that was with us last night. Very encouraging. But he asked me as a minority. He said, please, don't hesitate to address the minority cultures as well. We must all be intentional about seeking relationships and repentance. Both the majority and the minority cultures need pointing to the cross. There is no sinless parties here. So true. So my conclusion, conclusion. so why do all this? Well, one, for the, for the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ who've had to fight for justice, security, identity, hope, and love. They've had to fight all their life. Let's do it for them. But more importantly even, let's do it to make the bride of Christ God's feature attraction in this community. To a broken and fractured world, let's show them something different. So Primitive Church, let's get that flywheel. Let's get it going. Little bit by little bit, let's get it going. And we'll do it as we repent and build relationships. Let's bow and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we bow now before you and we simply ask that you would take this message and you would let it reverberate, not in my words, but in truth of repentance and relationships, which we know you've got to be applauding in light of your text that we read. So I pray. Would you do an amazing work here? And I pray, give me the eyes to see one day, the length of life to be able to see this place reflecting your glory in an awesome way. We love you and thank you for all of our dear friends, a part of your family here. May we love you well by loving others. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You want us to stand? You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.